The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Nice to be here again. Uh, if you know anything about preachers, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, you never want to preach the Sunday after Thanksgiving. It's sort of like the Sunday after Christmas or back where I came from, uh, you know, the Sunday of daylight savings time in the spring, you know, because you just know uh, it's not going to be a good Sunday. But I'm impressed you're all here. Uh, Pete had asked me to preach on uh, gluttony and consumerism this morning, <laughs> and, but I told him I would be more comfortable just going on with the Reformation series, and so that's what we're going to do. Um, the text in the bulletin that you have there is, is not the right one. It's actually 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. I'm a dyslexic texture, apparently. So if, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1... Um, and then let me ask you this question. Who has the authority to tell you what to believe? Who has, uh, who has veto power over your opinions about God and faith and life and ethics? It was a rhetorical question. So, <laughs> that's right. The, uh, so, but if it was anybody other than the Holy Spirit, wouldn't that be like a uh, strange and un-American sort of question? Nobody tells me what to think. Nobody tells me what my opinion should be. I mean, what kind of person would I be if I let somebody else tell me what to think? You know, I'd be a fool if I did that. And everything in us, uh, from our breathing or the water we drink or the air we breathe or something, tells us that uh, you have to be a critical thinker, make up your own mind, follow your own heart. And um, your opinions, especially about big questions in life, are completely up to you. And if you were to give control of that away to someone else, you'd be a stooge. Right? And so it's a Christian oddity that the Holy Spirit is one that we submit to, not just uh, in terms of obedience, but in terms of how we think. Like what my opinions are about God, what my opinions are about ethics and morals, I am submitting to someone else with whom I may and probably will disagree a fair amount of the time. And I'm going to say, when I disagree with this other person, I'm going to assume I'm wrong and defer. That's a pretty weird uh, situation to be in as an American or probably anybody else. You're going to defer to someone else's authority. But this is the Christian faith, is that we submit ourselves as ultimate authority over what we believe and about the practice of our lives to the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. We submit our, our thoughts to the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. And so I want us to talk about this and some of why it's uncomfortable for us and what it means for us to hold on to this belief that um, we have an authoritative word from God that is to function in our lives authoritatively over what we think. And, uh, you know, this is an issue that was a hot-button issue at the time of the Reformation in the 1500s, but at least ever since then, the question of authority has been a uh, contemporary problem for the church. It's changed shape in some ways, but it's been the problem all along. So that's what we're going to look at today in this passage from 2 Peter. Let me pray for us first, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, we pray that you would uh, cause your Holy Spirit to open our eyes 
to understand your word. And we pray that um, you'd cut through the fog in our lives that makes our apprehension of your word so difficult for some reason. So come help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, read with me beginning at verse 16 of uh, 2 Peter 1. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is the word of the Lord. You know, I forget that out of practice, I have it. We always say, thanks be to God after that, but some of you, you know, thank you. Okay, thank you. So, um, Famous Reformation scene at the Diet of Worms, uh, Martin Luther, uh, when he's asked to recant his teachings that have disagreed with the church's teachings, says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. My conscience is captive to the word of God. And um, that does not sound incendiary to me. And I'm guessing to most Americans, the idea that I, it really sounds like someone saying, I have my opinion, you can't change it. I've, I have my convictions, and they're my convictions, and I don't care what anybody else says. This is what I think. Um, he's not saying that exactly, but he does get in big trouble for saying, my conscience is captive to the Word of God, because in saying that, he's saying, I'm going against the official teaching of the church. I'm going against the official teaching of the church. Can you imagine ever going against the official teaching of the church? <laughs> of course you can I mean, the idea that you would go against the official teaching of the church has got to be the smallest deal ever for an American. Even Roman Catholics who uh, live in the United States go against the teaching of the church uh, willy-nilly all the time, uh, whether they should or not. Right? It's, it's the most common thing in the world for us to think, I'll, I believe what I believe. My church believes this. I believe some of that. I believe this. I've chosen from the cafeteria the things I like, and those are my opinions, right? And my church happens to teach this. I happen to go to a church that agrees with a lot of what I think, but ain't that America, right? I mean, going against the teaching of the church is no big deal. But it is a big deal, actually. And the, uh, the church in the Middle Ages was very nervous about Luther and his cohorts because uh, what he's saying opens the door to a lot of problems, a Pandora's box of issues that will come up if you go against the teaching of the church because um, not because the church in the Middle Ages had a low view of the Bible and didn't think it was really from God they believe the same thing about the Bible that we do but they realized that um, unless there's some um, someone in charge who is reliable uh, what they call the magisterium the official uh, teaching and interpretation of the church, unless there's some kind of controlling influence there, then you'll have 
a thousand or a million magisterii, I guess, uh, of people who say that they are the um, official arbiters of what the Bible really says and what we really ought to believe from reading it. And that if you have that, the church is going to break apart into a million pieces. And uh, every idiot with a verse is going to have his own church. Right? And, um, and even though there are authority dangers with the monopoly power over interpretation of the Bible, if you just let everybody interpret it on their own, you're still going to have authority problems because you know, every charismatic personality will be able to gather people around him and his interpretation of the Bible. You'll ruin the church and the faith if you just let everybody go off willy-nilly and interpret the Bible on their own. And thank goodness that hasn't happened. Um, right? So, you know, pity the churchmen who listened to Martin Luther uh, saying that my conscience has captured the Word of God and, and saying, wait a minute, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. But Luther and his cohorts said, well, yeah, but what else are we going to do? Because the church and its magisterium has erred and has abused its monopoly power over interpretation in a way that has robbed the hope of the gospel from most people who are going to church right now. And there's a desperate need for reform, and it can never come from this magisterium. Because the church is erred, it can't be the ultimate authority. He said the Bible somehow has to be the ultimate authority over the church. And uh, the nickname for that down through the ages, we, we refer to that as sola scriptura. Only the scripture is ultimately authoritative. And so that was one of the uh, depth charges of the Reformation that uh, really changed Christianity as we know it and as we've had it handed down to us. It was, a, it was a view that caused Luther and uh, others at the time of the Reformation to translate the Bible into, into the vernacular, into our language, which was a uh, massive giveaway of power. Because you know, Luther was a monk. He was a religious professional. And that meant he had uh, all the cards when it comes to religious authority and power. Whatever he said goes, because who can challenge him? Who knows more than he does? You know, the little people have to just trust what he says. By having the Bible only in Latin, only the really educated people could understand it, and the clergy had a monopoly power on it. So they had all the power that church power affords you, which was a lot in those days. Um, and by translating the Bible into German, Luther was giving away his power, which is what people in Jesus' kingdom do, right? They, they take power and they give it away to other people for their benefit. But the ultimate authority uh, for us then is it's the Scripture. It is the Holy Spirit speaking in and through the Scriptures. Now, ever since the Reformation, I don't know, ever since the Reformation, in my living memory, uh, which is almost since the Reformation, <laughs> the, uh, the challenge of authority has changed shape a little bit. It's like when I was a young man, uh, the big issue for the authority of the Bible was reason. Instead of church power being over the Scripture, it was uh, human reason being over the Scripture. And all of the fundamentalist, modernist controversies of the last century, the reason that so many of the mainline Protestant denominations in the U.S. changed so radically during the last century was this issue of authority. Human reason has to sit in judgment over the Scripture. All right? um, and then 
in more recent times, human intuition sits in judgment over the Scriptures and undermines its authority. So those are kind of our, the issues that we have faced. Reason is a good gift of God, just like the church, and it is important if we're going to understand the Bible. But reason is something that is to be used as a servant, that we use our reason to understand the Scripture better, to challenge our prejudices and think about what it says and apply it to our lives. Uh, reason is not given to us uh, to be used as a judge over God and over what He's revealed to us. Uh, when reason is used to judge God rather than to understand His Word, it becomes, in Luther's colorful phrase, the devil's whore, right? And uh, because it's used uh, surreptitiously, it's used against the reason for which it was created. But when you put reason over the Bible, you can do what people did in the middle of the last century, which is uh, you can slip the yoke of God's authority and say, I'm going to pick and choose by being critical about what I think is really actually from God and what actually isn't from God, so that, as it turns out, if you really read the Bible right, it completely agrees with all of my prejudices and assumptions. <laughs> it reaffirms everything I think. Um, and as someone said uh, in the days of the height of the ascendancy of reason in the church, said it's as if people who are scholars look down the 2,000-year deep well of history and see their own reflection shining back at them hey, it turns out the Bible thinks just what I think. Isn't that great? And so you have a faith with no sharp edges, ethically or morally or doctrinally. And you never have to be unpopular at a faculty meeting because, uh, yeah, I'm cool with everything you believe, but I also uh, am a Christian, which is an appealing thing. Uh, it appeals to me. Um, but reason hasn't had you know, great press for the last 25 or 30 years of where we live. And intuition has really come on strong as the challenge to authority in the church. We're going to get to the passage, uh, I promise. Sorry, this is a long setup. But intuition, uh, where we say, you know what, I don't really have to, I don't have to quibble with whether the Scripture is true or not. I've learned in my literature classes, at least at, at university, that words are elastic. And truth is what I kind of want truth to be. And if you really read it right, the Bible actually agrees with me as it's written. I don't have to carve out parts of it and say those aren't really part of the Bible. I can read it all and say, yeah, but actually if you read it right, it turns out it totally agrees with me. And I've slipped the yoke again because now none of my, uh, none of my moral assumptions is called into question. Uh, none of my uh, intuitions about what God should be or is like, none of that gets called into question because I can read the Bible selectively, and you don't have to be very clever to do that, uh, and many people among us do. Um, and once again, you're left with a Bible that doesn't challenge you, that doesn't contradict you, and doesn't function authoritatively for you. It's just a proof text for what you already happen to believe and think. So, in our day, thus saith the Lord has become, you know, I really feel that, and it's a pretty big difference in the question of authority. So, uh, it's not just a 1500s issue, it's uh, our issue the authority of Scripture. And so in this passage, there are two things that pretty obviously come out of it. Uh, one, we have to acknowledge the authority of Scripture, and second, we have to submit ourselves to it. And so I want us to look uh, closely at the passage and see how he unfolds these things. Peter's talking about his role as a witness to Jesus. He's one of the apostles that Jesus has commissioned and said, I will bring uh, to mind uh, everything that I've said to you, and when people hear you, they'll hear me. He never says that to other Christians. This were his authoritative spokespeople that he sent out. And Peter's sort of uh, 
explaining that to his hearers who might not be as familiar with it. But he talks about the general view of the Bible that Jesus had and that the, the Jewish people had, that the apostles have. In verse 20, he says, uh, he says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, not dictation, not golden tablets and special spectacles, not um, the reflections of a super pious person who would just like to share as a guru the insights that he has. No, these are people who uh, spoke from God himself, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's the view that Jesus had of the Old Testament, right? You know, when he talked about the Old Testament, he talked about it as if it were God himself saying these things that human people had written. Um, and though Peter says now in verse 19, we have something more than that. We kind of have the completion of that. We have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you do well to pay attention. What's more sure uh, is not that we have a different message from the Old Testament. It's that we have the culmination of the message from the Old Testament. What the prophets talked about, we've seen with our own eyes and touched with our hands and are eyewitnesses to tell you about that. Uh, the power and coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, which is the story of the whole Bible. Uh, he says, we, now, we have now seen the final chapter of that story uh, because we've seen Jesus Christ in the flesh. And so he describes his role that way in the, in the first verses, there are 16. They aren't myths that we cleverly devised. Um, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We saw uh, His majesty. We saw His life. We saw His ministry, His miracles, His teaching. We saw Him after He was raised from the dead. So you remember when uh, Judas bailed at the end and they had to replace him as one of the, one of the 12. What was the criteria for, the other, uh, for number 13? He had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. Right? Somebody who, was, who has uh, firsthand credible uh, witness what he'd seen, the actual historical events. They didn't say, we want the cleverest person, we want the most poetically gifted person, we want the most insightful person. Um, we want the person that just has those beautiful eyes. You can just see Jesus in his eyes. Now they said, we want somebody who's an eyewitness, right? We want somebody who's a credible witness to what Jesus was and did. And so um, he uses as an example, interestingly, the transfiguration. I don't know if you want the reference to this. It's very... Uh, a very flowery sentence for Peter to use. <laughs> he talks about um, the majestic glory and the voice from on high. But this was the day when Peter and James and John went up with Jesus onto a mountain and fell asleep. And, uh, and then God, the, like on Mount Sinai or other times when you see God's appearances, a cloud that's very bright comes down and sort of covers them. And they kind of wake up at this point and they see that Jesus is there speaking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus. It's a very rich passage. Um, Moses and Elijah, the representatives of the Old Testament uh, witnesses of God, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, which is how people would speak in shorthand of the Old Testament. Um, Jesus is sitting there with them, and then they are gone, and they hear a voice from heaven, God's own voice that says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, as Peter says here. And then all the accounts in the Gospels add to that. The voice from heaven says, Listen to Him. Listen to Him. And they looked and they saw Jesus alone. The idea being that Moses and Elijah's message is culminated in Jesus, and He's the ultimate revelation from God. Listen to Him. This is my Son speaking for me. 
And now listen to his eyewitnesses that he's authorized to speak in his behalf. So this is Peter's idea, which is the consistent biblical idea of what Scripture is. It is uh, the Holy Spirit speaking through human instruments who are authorized by God to speak for him. Such that when we read these words, even though they're colored by the, the author's personalities, even though they use colloquialisms and uh, hyperbole and idioms, when we hear their words, we hear the words of God reliably. With all the limitations of language, God is able to speak to us understandably in our language. And we have this in the Scripture. All right? And that's our idea. Because the Scriptures are from God, therefore they're authoritative because we have what He says here. And um, that means that you have a Bible that can, does, and should contradict you pretty often. Like your prejudices and assumptions should be irritatingly challenged when you read the Bible. You should bristle pretty often when you read the Bible and say, oh, I, don't, I don't believe that. I don't think that's right. And if you're not reading it that way, you're probably not a good reader. Right? Or you're probably not an unbiased reader. Because uh, who do you know that Jesus spoke to that responded to what he said by saying, finally someone's saying what I've been saying. That is exactly right. Thank you. Thank you. Did you hear that? That's what I've been saying. Right? Everyone said, you're crazy. You're demon-possessed. Um, you're evil. That, that can't be right. You can't be serious. Everybody, his disciples constantly responded to what he said that way. Well, if that's true, nobody can be saved, right? You'll never wash my feet. You'll never go to the cross. Not while I'm here. I'll die for you. I mean, and Peter was the boldest and had the least impulse control of any of the disciples. <laughs> so he was always doing that. So the idea that you're going to be contradicted by the Bible is very uh, familiar to him. Right? So um, is that happening for you? Like, do you have things where you, um, where you say, wow, I, mm, I wouldn't have written it up that way if it had been me. I thought about it. I've got I have a bunch of things like that where I think, I guess I'm wrong, but I don't feel wrong. <laughs> you know? But there's an authority. This is God's Holy Spirit speaking through in, in His Word. And part of that is why the church does still matter. Because we're shot through with these biases, we do need the church to help us read the Bible well. You know? um, do you think it's wise or safe to ignore 20 centuries of the Holy Spirit's work amongst the people of God, teaching them the Scriptures? Like, you've got, nothing, you've got nothing to learn from what the Holy Spirit's done and what brilliant Christians have done for 20 centuries across times and continents. You've got nothing to learn from that? You probably do, right? And uh, even if you have a situation like you have where you have a... a you know, almost an unprecedentedly uh, educated clergy. I mean, so few Christians in the world have ever had someone who knows half of what Pete Rearman knows as their pastor, right? And, uh, and not only does he have access to that training, he's unusually bright, right? So, I mean, and yet Pete thinks it's important for him to submit himself to a presbytery, right, which is a group of churches in Arizona who exercise an oversight uh, uh, authority over his teaching. Right? And, uh, and he does that because he's got sense enough to do that. 
and he knows as bright and well-educated as he is and as good as, as his sentiments are and as nice as he is that uh, he's prone to every bit of abuse of power and biased reading of the scriptures anybody else. And so thank God for men like Pete Rearman who does that. But we need the church to help us read. The idea that we can all just be our own theology professor and, and just say what feels right to me and seems right to me is the reason the church is blown apart in the United States. It's the reason that uh, when the scriptures say false prophets have gone out into the world, you think they never imagined what uh, we've experienced in the United States in the church. Um, so the church still matters very much. Reason still matters very much. Um, the Bible's not the easiest book in the world to understand, plus you're trying to do a translation of language and culture from a long time ago. And, um, and you need to be smarter, <laughs> and you need really smart people around you who can help you understand the Bible because it's, it's clear in the most important ways, but it's hard. And I think if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, you, you find yourself foundering at places thinking, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure how well I'm doing with this. I need reason so I can grow in my understanding of the Scripture and grow in my application of the Scripture. I need to ask questions that I have about its reliability and about what it means. And I'm sure Pete could give you uh, lots of books and talks and conversation about uh, the questions that you have, and it's totally appropriate to ask those questions. It's one of the fruits of the Reformation is we don't just say, the church says that so I believe it, meaning I don't have to think about it and I don't want to think about it. We're told, no, you have to think about it, you need to think about it, and uh, you need to be deferential to the church. Uh, but like the people in Berea and Acts, you search the scriptures to see if what you're being taught is true. Um, and that's one of, the, one of the fruits we have from the Reformation. So you still need reason. You still need your intuition, too, because uh, sometimes your intuition will just cause a goofy flag to go up in your head. You're thinking, wow, the conclusion I'm drawing from this sounds bizarre and unreasonable. Um, maybe I need to ask some more questions about this. And sometimes your intuition really helps you with that. You know, sometimes you'll listen to somebody and you'll think, I'm not sure I could give you an essay about everything they said and why it was wrong, but they give me the creeps, and so <laughs> I'm going to check this out further. Intuition's a nice gift from God. Yeah. So it's not unimportant, but the ultimate authority has to be the Scripture. Maybe you figured out that point already. So if you tell Luther, though, like uh, 600 years hence, 500 years hence, you're, um, you're going to have people who have the Bible in their language, and I mean really in their language, like on an eighth grade level in their language, uh, and multiple versions of it that are really pretty well translated. And they're going to have study notes at the bottom that explain everything really accurately and well. I mean, the study Bibles we have are wonderful. And they're going to have access to all kind of podcasts, to, to uh, wonderful preaching. They're going to have access to all of your books, <laughs> um, cheap, in their language. And uh, all your sermons, they can read anytime they want. I've got a bunch of Luther sermons at my house. And... Uh, Man, I mean, the Word of God is going to be accessible like nobody ever imagined. The ministers are going to be trained in it to understand it. It's going to be unreal. He would have said, well, I guess Jesus will come back immediately then because that's perfect. I mean, if that happened, the church would be blowing and going. The people would be so deep in their understanding of the Scripture, so godly, uh, so persuasive with their friends who are outside the faith. That would be awesome. And is that what happens when we have this access? Like the opposite of that happens. You know, we're 
we're more superficial in our understanding of the Scripture than a lot of the people who didn't know Latin and only heard it preached in Latin. Uh, the American church is unbelievably immature in the scriptures. How in the world does that happen? Uh, even the church, churches like this one that have a really high view of the Bible as being actually from God. Uh, and the answer, I guess, is in the second part of what he says here, is that not only do you have to believe this and acknowledge that the scripture is authoritative, you have to actually submit yourself to it. Or as he says in verse 19, you have to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place which turns out not to be automatic. You can have a high view of Scripture and not pay any attention to it. Trust me, I know. You know, I'm, I don't understand this in me. I don't know why I have a reluctance to, really, to read the Bible. I don't know why it's not compelling to me. But um, it rarely is. It rarely is. I don't know about you. I hope, I hope it's not just me. Um, remember the Wizard of Oz? Um, Dorothy and her friends are getting close to the Emerald City, going down the Yellow Brick Road, and um, the Wicked Witch of the West is doubling down on her efforts. She's got to stop them somehow, and she says, hmm, I think something with poison in it. Mm, poison, yes. <laughs> you remember? It was a great character. I know who that was. Uh, but she says, yes, poison in it, but attractive to the eyes and soothing to the smell. I know. What does she say? Poppies, yeah, poppies, right? She says, yes, poppies, that'll put them to sleep. Yes, now they'll sleep, my pretties, yeah. And so she, she puts this huge poppy field uh, right near the entrance to the Emerald City. So when Dorothy and her friends come out of the forest and they get their first glimpse of the Emerald City up close, they're thrilled. Right? They say, oh, this is it, it's beautiful, like I knew it would be. He must be a wonderful wizard to live in a city like that. Come on, hurry, let's go. And they start running through the poppy field. Uh, toward the Emerald City. They're right there. They've been going through all these adventures to get there. They're right there, and they're running through, and all of a sudden, Dorothy sort of starts, you know, falling back from the others running, and, and they say, come on, Dorothy, what's wrong? And she says, I don't know, I can't run anymore. She says, I just feel so sleepy. If I could just lie down for a minute, and where's Toto? And she looks over, Toto's already <laughs> laid out, and then they look back, and then she's falling out of sleep, and then the lion falls out of sleep. Somehow, the tin man and the scarecrow don't go to sleep. So they're just left there to panic, like, ah, what's wrong? This is terrible. You know, the scarecrow, brainless man, yeah, this is terrible. He says, uh, it's, a, it's a spell, I tell you, that is, it's a spell. It's the wicked witch. Help, help, help. And the tin man says, there's no use crying. No one will hear us. And then he starts yelling, help, help, too. And it's a spell. It's the wicked witch. And, and then, uh, then Glinda, the good witch from Disney heaven, you know, kind of fades into the screen and... <laughs> And looks down and, and comes to the rescue. Do you remember what, how she rescued them? You people need to watch your Wizard of Oz again. She sends snow. Yes, she sends snow that wakes them up from the poppy field. And the Wicked Witch says, curses, curses. Someone always helps that girl. Right. So, you know, art needs no justification. The story's good on its own. But the point is that we live in a poppy field. In view of the Emerald City, you know, we're this far down, the word of the prophet's more certain, here we are, there it is, and if we could just lie down and sleep a little bit, it'd be fine. And, and so, you know, you have people like Pete who stand here playing with his arms and say, it's a spell, it's the Wicked Witch, <laughs> help! <laughs> because you need someone to do that, right? 
you'd need someone to do that. It's terrible. Um, and you need snow. Um, you need snow to wake you up, which in some ways is just to say we need, we need God to just intervene to wake us up. Um, but there are ways that he usually does that, and there are ways that we can open ourselves to his intervention. Um, one is that we need each other more than we realize. You know, the individualistic idea of American Christianity is me and Jesus, me and my Bible, I'm fine. Uh, church is helpful on a limited, uh, in a limited way, but we need each other uh, very badly. Um, you need Pete to yell to you. You need, um, you need to hear God's Word together. And I'm not sure I understand this very well, but there's something to it. For most of the history of the church, for most Christians who've lived anywhere, uh, their access to the Bible was public. They didn't have Bibles at home that they'd go home and read. They didn't have private devotions at home with their Bible because they didn't have them. If they were literate, they might not know Latin, and they certainly couldn't afford, certainly couldn't afford scrolls. Um, so most of their access to the, to the Scripture was public, to hear it preached. Right? And uh, we, have, we have a different view now, partly because of our access, but partly because we don't understand how important the social dynamics are with this, that to hear together, to to wrestle with things, these things together as a community is a lot of the way that God works His Word down into our lives and how its authority functions. And also, in, uh, not just in sermons, but also we gather in small groups, Bible studies, book clubs, things like that where we, we can talk. Because it's really hard to talk about uh, the Bible in normal conversation, even when you're with other Christians. You know, you're either going to sound pompous, like a know-it-all, or you're going to sound uh, like a jerk who's over-spiritualizing everything, you know, who Jesus jukes everything, you know, who's watching the game, they say it's third down and 16 to go, and you say, you know, John 3.16 says, <laughs> you know, and you, so it really is hard to have friendships where you talk about the Bible with some depth and seriousness, and so creating structures like Bible studies or book groups or things where it makes more sense to do it is really helpful to us. I think y'all emphasize small groups a lot in this church, and um, you need that because uh, if the Scripture is going to function for you authoritatively in a world where nothing else re reaffirms the prejudices and notions that you have from the world that shape your intuitions and shape your reason, the only voice speaking against that is the Scripture, and you need other people around you to help you hear it. Uh, you know, you really do, because what you believe is crazy weird in this world, right? What you believe is crazy weird. Being a being engaged in mission helps somehow. Um, if you're involved with friends who aren't Christians or you're involved in places of real brokenness in the world where you're trying to be of help for Jesus' sake, it creates a sense of need and urgency in you that, that pushes you to the Scripture. And uh, I'll give you an example of this. If you lived in the Bible Belt, you would be uh, much more disinterested in the Scriptures than you are in Tucson. Um, because the fog and the poppies are thicker there. But if you lived in Afghanistan, you would be way more awake than you are here in Tucson just because of where you are. Not because you're smarter or more spiritual or more disciplined, but your sense of need would change immediately. Uh, your concern, your interest in being able to give a, an answer about the faith, your interest in holding to the faith in a hostile setting, it would just be ramped up naturally in your minds. And so... Being engaged in mission with people who aren't Christians, who don't agree with you, 
uh, is very helpful for you spiritually, and it drives you to the Scripture. So, um, and then regularity in exposing yourself to the Scripture matters very much, both in coming to church and small group and reading on your own, which we can do, um, because we're, we're like the guy in uh, Memento. Do you remember this Christopher Nolan movie? Um, that guy Pierce was the star of it, and he, he and his wife were attacked, and she was killed, and through the trauma, he developed what they call anti-retrograde amnesia, which means that his long-term memory is intact, but he can't form new memories. And so every day when he wakes up, uh, he can't remember anything uh, since the trauma. And his mission in the movie is to find out who attacked and killed his wife and to vindicate her, but he can't remember anything he learns about it day to day. All he remembers is the time from before the attack. And so he starts taking Polaroids of important events, and he starts writing on his body, with tattoos and Sharpies, information that he's going to need to remember and writing notes to himself so that when he wakes up in the morning and can't remember anything, he's represented with this information. Um, and so he's able to make some small progress each day because he does that. So um, does that sound anything like your devotional life? Like you, you orient yourself to the world in terms of God's Word. It speaks authoritatively in your life. It's, it's vision of what's true is in your head. But then you wake up and all of a sudden the world seems normal again. You're not in a dark place where you need a light anymore. You're in a good place, and your reason is trustworthy, and God seems to be in His heaven, and all's right with the world, and your assumptions are probably pretty good, and everything the advertisers say seems normal, and everything you're doing, like everybody else, just seems like you're one more person in the crowd, and if you go to the mirror, though, and you've gotten tole lege written backwards on your forehead... This is a metaphor, don't do that. Take up and read, and it's backwards, so you see it in the mirror and you think, oh yeah, wait a minute, there's something I'm supposed to remember, this place isn't right. Like, and then you go to the Scripture right, to reorient yourself to say, oh, wait a minute, this, this world is broken, and um, the kingdom isn't here, but it's coming. Jesus is reigning with all authority in heaven and on earth now to set this world back right side up, but it's not right side up. And I'm, I'm a sleeper agent here in His kingdom. And the kingdom is the ultimate reality. And what He says is true and the, what the advertisers are saying is not true. And my assumptions are not true. Oh yeah, I, I remember. I, this is actually the way things are. The kingdom's real. God's grace is real. I really live... Uh, my, my guilty conscience is lying to me. Right? Just like my self-righteous, justifying brain is lying to me. And Jesus is real, and He has really come to my rescue and forgiven me and brought me into His family. And, he's br and now I'm on a pilgrimage to the Emerald City, as it were. And, oh yeah, but I forgot every bit of that while I was asleep. Right? So I have to write it down somewhere and see it. And surely there's some sense in which the Scriptures function that way for us. Right? These are the things that we do well to pay attention to, like a light shining in a dark place, because ultimate authority is here. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, the one who always helps that girl. Right. Now let's pray.